Before we jump back into 2 Timothy, I want to make a real quick announcement. Next week, we're beginning a membership class, one of our membership classes that we do every quarter, and it begins at 4 o'clock. And one of the requirements for being a part of the membership class is going through Intro to Grace, which is also only offered once a quarter. So I'm going to offer a special Intro to Grace next week at 3 before the membership class at 4. And so if you didn't get a chance to make the Intro to Grace class last time, but you would like to go through the membership class, please come and see me afterwards, and that way I can know how many are going to be there for the Intro to Grace. So next week, 3 o'clock, if you would like to jump in on that so you can then go through the three-week membership class, and the membership class will begin at 4 o'clock next week. I read a study this week, which is no surprise to any parents of boys out there, uh, parents of teenage boys now uh, have evidence to back up the claim that they could literally be eaten out of house and home. 14 to 17-year-old boys will eat a lunch of 2,000 calories easily given the chance. All right, and, and so that reiterates for me the truth of it because I grew up with two brothers and my mom always said how much we ate, and it's true. Jeb, how many guys do you have here with you this week? Where's Jeb at? All right, uh, is Michael, is Mr. Smith feeding everybody? All right, are you guys consuming a lot of calories? Big appetites? I bet. 20 guys, 20 people, right? 20 people from UGA over here with uh, Jeb today. Good to have you guys with us. But we can eat some food. I mean, my parents would stop that Schwann truck on the way down the street, you know? And, and, and I looked, and, and they don't sell these two-gallon ice cream things like they used to. I don't know why, but I mean, we buy it by the two-gallon bucket. Uh, it was, uh, I remember my favorite was banana split, and we would just consume this stuff. We had monster appetites, and that age for guys between 14 and 17, we could literally eat whatever we wanted and never gain weight. It was a, a great time of life for sure. We all have big appetites. It may not be necessarily food, but we all have big appetites. Some people, their appetite could be alcohol. Some people, it could be power, money, sex, shopping, gambling, and we know that our appetites can very easily and quickly get out of control. God has given us appetites, but they can quickly become painful addictions. Paul Tripp, a guy who I quote a lot here at church, he says this, he says, if you look outside of the Savior for something to be your Savior, that thing will end up not being your Savior, but being your master. That thing will not be your savior, it will be your master. And so today, as we talk about appetites, we talk about passion, we talk about the things that we desire, if God isn't in his rightful place in our life, our lives can quickly and oftentimes very unknowingly, until it's too late, go spiraling downward, and we look for these counterfeit saviors, these functional saviors. So the question today is, what is driving your appetites? What is driving, think about that for a second, what is driving your appetites? What is the thing that you're passionate about that oftentimes may pull you away from God, may replace God in your life? God desires to be the foremost passion in our life. And when we have him as the center, everything else will fall in place. But as long as we're looking to other things to fill this void, we're going to find ourselves in a lot of trouble spiritually, physically, mentally. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 through 26. Let me pray, and we'll look at this passage together. Father God, you know us. You made us. 
And God, you know that even the most passionate Christian in here has a divided heart at times. We have a divided person that can desire things that are contrary to the things that we know are the things that are lasting, the things that bring glory to you. And so, God, I pray that every person here will be in tune to the Holy Spirit speaking into their heart through this passage of Scripture today. God, help us to not think that this is for somebody else, but help us to know that it's for ourselves. Why, while our appetites may not be the destruction that some things we think cause, things like power and greed and envy can so easily take over our lives and cause us to not fulfill the, the mission that you have for us. And God, I pray you'll make us aware of those things today. In Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's look at verse 20. Paul writes this to young pastor Timothy. He says, as way of illustration, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable so Paul, using this visual, visual illustration from everyday life, he's contrasting vessels, all right? Just another word for utensils or common things that are in a house during that time that could be furniture, tools, whatever. And so by way of illustration, he says that a house can have honorable things like china, dishes, glasses, those type of things where you're proud of those things. You pull those things out. They're maybe in a china cabinet at your house. In this culture, they would have pulled these things out for their guests, and these things would have been the things that they were proud of. These are our dishes that we use to serve special guests. But the illustration he's giving, in that same house, there's dishonorable vessels. There's things that are used for dirty, nasty, mundane jobs. And so what he's getting at is, not that those things don't help us practically, but by way of illustration, he's saying that these things are basically worthless. They're disposable. They're things like rags to clean up messes, garbage cans, or even maybe something like this that I picked up today, which is, if you have any cats at your house, you know what this is, right? What is this? It's a, a scooper, right? So he has something like this in mind, just a common utensil that you would find in the house that would be dishonorable. This is nothing that you would highlight for your guests, but instead he would say you would pull out your best Tupperware, or not Tupperware, I'm sorry, Chinaware, your best China, maybe you would your Tupperware, right? Uh, your best China, and you would serve this. So he's given us a very visual picture here. He's saying every house has these things in them. Every great house, every house that has means. And so the, the picture of the great house is the church, the people of Christ, the body of Christ. And there you'll find people who are honorable, and there you'll find people who are lacking in honor. Those who pursue holiness and truth, and those who are pursuing their own appetites, their own selfish ambitions. People like we talked about the last few weeks, Hymenius and Philetus, these guys who were Paul said were gangrene in the church. They were a cancer to the body. They were people who were dishonorable in their lives and their conducts, but they were somewhat part of this church body. And, and specifically, these guys were false teachers, so were they not only living the wrong kind of life, but they were also affecting and influencing other people within the congregation of believers. And so two types of people. And so God says in verse 21, the type of people he uses are people who are clean vessels. 
he can use for good works. Look at verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Paul's basically saying, if you're going to be used of God, then you need to separate yourself from these false teachers, these people who are living this ungodly life. And maybe ungodly doesn't necessarily look like the guy who, you know, they had to drag out of the bar at 2 a.m. because he's so drunk he can't walk. It may just look like it's like somebody who is just full of themselves, as we're going to see in a minute, full of pride, full of selfishness. So he says the people that God uses in this passage are people who live their life in a way that's honorable. And then look what he does. He breaks it down this in the verse, and he gives three different ways. He says, one, you're set apart as holy. Set apart as holy. You're special in God's eyes because he has a special calling on your life. We're holy because of what Christ did. Christ died on the cross so that we could be declared holy. The song we just sang that said, I'm a sinner through and through. We know, apart from Jesus Christ, we are just messed up individuals. We naturally and quickly default to our own passions and desires. We naturally default to living lives that are not pleasing and glorifying to God. Think about your past week. I'm sure you can recall times where you didn't live like you were set apart as for, for holiness. But Paul writes and he says, as Christians, if God is going to use you, you must be set apart for holiness. And this is a, a pointing back to the Leviticus priesthood, the people in the Old Testament who were uh, declared to be the servants of God who God used, and even instruments within the temple and within the tabernacle but prior to that, that, these things, these instruments were declared holy. And so he's given a visual for the people, and he's saying, you're set apart as holy. And then he says, useful to the master of the house. And the master, it's a, it's a strong term that he's given for God's authority over our lives. I think of Galatians 2.20, a verse I quote all the time that says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. It's the idea that I don't live for myself anymore. In Christ, when Christ gave us salvation, when his grace came upon our life and we responded to that, he declared us holy, and then well, now practically and literally we have a new master. And our new master, which is God, and we obey him and we arrange our lives in order to follow him and not follow these passions, desires, and appetites that we all have. And then he says the third thing, he says, then real practically, just practical good. Just you're ready for every good work. You want to be for every, ready for every good work? Be a clean vessel. Be a clean vessel an honorable vessel that God can use because when we are pursuing Christ, then the good works, the practical things, come much more naturally out of our life than when we're living with this in our lives. Maybe it's secret, maybe it's more obvious. And then God has good works for us. One, we don't spot them because we're living selfish. Or if we do see it, we do it for selfish reasons. Selfish motivations, guilt, we just feel like, you know, it's something I have to do at the moment or I don't want to tell them no. And so God takes us and he uses our practical skills and abilities to make a difference in other people's lives. And this isn't a Hollywood movie where you're the hero of the story and you're up in lights and all of a sudden, you know, you do these good, noble things and you're ushered up on people's shoulders and carried around because you're this great servant. 
most of the time, these practical things that we do are very normal and ordinary things, things that most people never see. It's like the, the lady in our church in Dallas who made an impact on me because every week she came to the church kitchen uh, when nobody was around and cleaned up for the, next, for, the, for the week, for the next Sunday. And she did that faithfully year in and year, year out because that was her ministry, one of her ministries, was just to serve in a very, very humble and servant-like way. And so Paul's, again, these strong, bold contrasts. You can pursue holiness, you can run from your passions and be honorable, or you can indulge your passions, indulge the flesh, and be dishonorable and really no use to the kingdom of God. So look what he says in verse 22. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You know, one thing that's really interesting when it comes to Scripture, and something I think we can look at and talk about and and study for an entire lifetime but never can fully understand, is this, as Jerry Bridges calls, this synergy, this, this tension or this way that the Spirit and our flesh, our bodies, our humanness, we work together in order to accomplish the will of God. And I think what I'm talking about here can best be summed up in a verse in Colossians where Paul writes this, he says, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending upon Christ's mighty power that works within me. So Paul says, I'm working, I'm straining, I'm trying, I'm doing practical things, I'm doing real things with my hands, with my body, I'm making a difference for God's kingdom, I'm going places, I'm pursuing his work, but it's Christ's mighty power that's working in me that enables this. And so as you think about holiness, and as you think about verses like verse 22, flee youthful passions, it's so easy to either default to, it's all my efforts, it's all my strength. I hate that about myself. I hate that I'm always so selfish. And I, I just I hate that I'm, I'm like that. I'm just going to try my best to stop being that way. Or we can join God in what he's already doing in our lives, and we can embrace God's work and realize that while we work, the, the very person who enables us to do that work and the force behind that and the power to have victory is the Holy Spirit. So we work, we struggle toward holiness, but we recognize that it's God's power that works within me. So when we read verses like, flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, we run from our youthful fleshly appetites and our simple passions, and we pursue righteousness with everything that we have And we cleanse ourselves from being dishonorable, but at the same time, we humbly and dependently recognize that God is the one doing the work. If I can make this even clearer because of this mystery that it's involved, I love a verse from Psalm 127, verse 1. Read this, how, how practical and real this is. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, The watchman stays awake in vain. So he gives two activities, two jobs that would have been normal in that culture, a house builder and a person who's guarding a city. And so he's saying that God isn't just involved in helping out, maybe occasionally giving you a little push toward holiness or giving you a little push toward hammering that nail into the wood or a little help in staying alert and awake uh, at night watching the city. He's saying that, God doesn't simply help the builder or the watchman. He's 
totally and completely involved with them. He supplies all the enabling power, and they do all the tangible work. So God doesn't literally take the hammer and start hammering the nail, and God doesn't literally say, hey, go on to sleep, I'll watch for you. You stay awake and watch, you hammer the nail, you do the tangible work, but it's God who does everything also. That's a mystery. It's a mystery that we must embrace. So when we come to verses like verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, if there's ever a verse that was drilled into teenage boys when you're growing up is that verse, right? I mean, we heard that at every camp, every breakout group, every um, event that we went to in the youth group, flee youthful passions. And we know that where we always landed on that was like, oh, you know, here comes the, the, the sex talk again, the sex struggles. I know we have kids in the room. I'll be very vague here. But this, while this makes a perfect example for what he's talking about here, it's not limited to just those temptations. But I think the picture here of fleeing youthful passion is, is beautiful in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And the majority of people who grew up in church, you know the story of Joseph, how that Joseph was put into slavery in Egypt by God's design, by God's will. And Joseph then was put into the house of a guy named Potiphar, who was a very, very strong authority figure who ruled over the guards in Egypt. And Joseph was in charge of his entire household. So while Potiphar was out making a living, doing the military thing, Joseph was in his house organizing, keeping order, running the thing. Well, Potiphar's wife saw Joseph. Scripture says he's a handsome, well-built dude. And she notices, and she begins to get interest in him and make passes at Joseph. And Joseph says, nope, I'm a man of integrity. I follow God. Not going to happen. Well, what happens? She doesn't quit. She doesn't quit trying. In fact, one day she comes in, and he's there, and she grabs him by the coat, and she tries to seduce him. He wiggles out of his coat and runs out of the house, flees youthful passion. What an amazing story and a very, very practical one of what we are to do when it comes to the youthful passions, those appetites that we have. We don't indulge the flesh. We run from the flesh. We get away, tangibly, practically sometimes. But at the same time, we recognize and we must acknowledge God because it's not the end result that God's after always. He's after the journey to get there as well. The running and the fleeing, God meets us in those moments. God meets us there, and he's making us more like Jesus Christ. And so in those moments of temptation, in those moments of struggle, those moments of youthful passions, which should not be limited to just guys between a certain age. This is all of us. These passions that we have, God wants us to continually admit those things, confess those, and those struggles that we have. Say, God, I want your power in my life. I don't want to just try to do this on my willpower, and I don't want to have a false attitude of I just need to let go and let you do the work. God, help me in some way to join you in what you're doing here to make me holy and righteous and a clean vessel so I can fulfill my purpose, which is to bring glory to you and to live for you. I don't want to be this. I don't want to live this way. I'm going to live the way that you call me, to be holy. And so, as I said earlier in the prayer, that we know we all have these divided spirits. Even the best believers in here, you have a divided heart over things. And we have these competing capacities. The, the, the scripture calls it our flesh 
competes in wars against our spirit. And we have this old capacity to sin and this new capacity as a believer to literally resist sinning and flee from youthful passions. God says that, not me. Because sometimes if you're practically in the midst of it, you feel like, God, where is that power that you say you have for us? And the thing is, even the fact that you're aware of it and God's bringing it to your attention and that you're trying to, through his strength, to work on that, and there's passions that you know are pulling you down and causing you to be unholy and not living the way that you should, even in the midst of just admitting that is a good sign that there's this war going on within you. And so the unbeliever, the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have that internal competition that's going on inside them. They can just sin and be fine with it. You know, it's not saying that, that unbelievers can't do good things, but their motivation for doing them can't be what Scripture says the Christian's motivation is, which is agape love, which is selfless love. I'm doing this out of love for others and love for God. Unbeliever doesn't, can't do that. Unbeliever could do some good things, but they can't do good things with agape, God's love, which is selfless love. I'm truly doing this for God's glory and for the good of others. And that doesn't come easy even for unbelievers because there's this battle that's going on. And this flesh is warring against us. And so as not to, again, not to limit flee youthful passions to simply the sexual immorality, look at Galatians 5, 19 through 21. We, gonna, we get a list of some of the sins that he's talking about when he talks about being unholy and living in the wrong way. He says sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. So he speaks to the things that Timothy and all of us have to deal with. He says, flee youthful passions. Run from those things. Embrace what God's doing to be holy, usable, honorable to him, and pursue. Don't just run. Don't just flee, but pursue. Look at verse 22 again. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So say no to the flesh. Say no to our passions. Say no to embracing a life that just, I'm just going to live whatever I feel like at the moment. If you can just embrace, just I'm going to live however I want, there really needs to be an honest heart check with, you, with yourself. Like, is the spirit really within me? Why can I just live this way or keep committing these sins with really no serious repentance in my life? Because I don't know about you, but my experience is that I can go for a while, but man, the Holy Spirit grabs hold of me, and he says, you better do something about this. I'm working, but you're to work with me. I'm helping you build the house. I'm not just helping you build the house. I'm building the house, but you need to drive some nails. I'm watching the city, but you need to be watchful. And so we join God in what he's doing already. But if there's no desire to join God, and I can just live whatever feels right at, at the moment, there's a problem there. There's a problem at the heart of our relationship with God. And so verse 23 says, kind of seems to be going in a different direction. He says, 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. But this falls in line with exactly the fleeing youthful passions. What he's saying here is, Youthful passions have a, have a tendency to want to fight, quarrel, argue, debate, discuss to the point where it's become hostile toward one another. And if we're living the way that God wants us to live and pursuing Jesus, not only are we aware of that, but we also want to be aware of other people and help them in this process of what we call sanctification, what Scripture calls progressive sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. So look, Paul's speaking into Timothy's life. Timothy, who's a pastor of a church, he has influence over people. There's false teachers who are trying to persuade and influence and cause them to live lives that are just full of passion, which Paul says it's debauchery, it's evil, it's dishonorable. He's saying the people of God should be living this way. You should be honorable vessels. And so one way this happens, Timothy, is you need to engage the people of your congregation and you need to be involved in them, which may involve even confronting people, calling out their sin. Now, you may be like me. I don't really enjoy confrontation. Those who know me are like, what? You don't enjoy confrontation? You seem like you like confrontation. I actually don't. I don't know too many people who love confrontation, right? And, and we can think of a million reasons why not to like confrontation of other people. I mean, I'm, at my heart, I'm a people pleaser. I won the Friendship and Sharing Award in the second grade, all right? I, I like to keep people happy. I'm a number two on the Enneagram, all right? I, I'm a, I'm a, I want to see everybody happy with me. And so it's hard to confront things when you know that the person may not receive it so well. And so sometimes it's just fear, fear of people. It's not a trembling, oh, I'm so scared of them, but it's just a fear that they might not approve of you or they might reject you at some level. And then other people, they don't confront others. I'm talking about leaders, K-group leaders, elders, deacons. We don't because maybe we're just lazy or we lack focus or maybe we just don't care enough for other people. We don't care enough in order to take the time and be focused enough to see what's going on. And so when we're aware of the own, our own sin in our lives, we recognize that we also can humbly approach other people about their sins, those who we have a relationship with, those who we know works the best, not just some stranger or some guy who you see at church across the room and you're like, oh, I need to confront that in their life. All right, I would encourage you to maybe go to someone who has influence in their life, their small group leader or someone they know well who you look up to. But, but he gives Timothy some real practical guidelines when it comes to confronting the sins of others. Because the church, God wants his house, the, the, the big house, the great house that he talked about, he wants his house to be full of honorable vessels. A church is full of a lot of these right here isn't going to accomplish anything for the kingdom. Nobody from the community, from the city, is going to look at Grace Church and say, wow, I want what they have. No, they won't do that. They'll look at you and your life, and they'll say, being a Christian makes really no practical difference in somebody's life. Why should I be a Christian? I mean, they, like, act the same way I do. And so Paul's saying, if you want to represent Jesus and be an ambassador for Jesus, there's times where we have to confront the sins of others, Timothy. Look what he says. He says, first, just be wise, Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Controversies, You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant, you must not be quarrelsome. So just don't 
get into these debates and discussions. Don't go confrontation and let your youthful passions get in the way from what should be a healthy opportunity to encourage other people's. And then, then sometimes it's, it's not even worth it. I think being wise, uh, when we talked a few weeks ago and had the illustration about the colored different uh, ways of doing triage, there's red, there's green, there's yellow, and, and looking at those and saying, okay, is this issue worthy of confrontation? All right, is this worthy of confrontation or is this just maybe something that I've just got, I'm stuck on, it's my opinion really for the most part, and I, I just don't like what they're doing. And so I think we, we're wise and we look at the issue and we pray about the issue and probably wisely talk to someone else about the issue and ask ourselves, is this a gospel issue? Is, is the gospel at stake in this issue? And if the gospel is at stake in the issue or holiness is at stake in the issue, then I think it is the time that you do say something and confront And then he goes on, he says, real practically, as you deal with these people, don't be quarrelsome. But he says, be kind to everyone. Second, be kind. Just this gentleness, this mildness. And I don't know how you deal with confrontation, but for me, my default is my face gets red and and I get worried and the adrenaline's pumping and I can be overbearing and loud and, and just plow through because I don't know how to be kind in that moment. It doesn't come naturally. And that's where it has to be a spirit thing. And obviously, it's something that we grow and we develop and get better at as time comes goes along. But we're to be kind, just real practically. Don't go in it with, with an attitude. And then thirdly, be instructive. I love this. He says, I need you, to, Timothy, to be able to teach. All right? As you're dealing with these situations, be able to teach. Be instructive. What, what a great, listen, what a great word for parents. Because there's times all the time when you have to confront your kids and their behavior. And I know that for a lot of times, I wasn't very instructive in my confronting that behavior. I just wanted the behavior to stop. Don't bother me anymore. You know, you're being loud or this or that, and this is having an effect on me. So stop it. There's no instruction there. There's no goal to help your child to grow, to become more like Christ, and to understand God's truth. It's just a gut reaction. You know, it's just a quick anger thing to correct this because I don't like it. And those who are in, in, in the K group right now doing one of my favorite books, Shepherding a Child's Heart, I love that. I love that book. It's all about making the intentional time and energy in order to speak into the heart of a child. And we fail a lot of that as parents, but we need to be focused in. We have great opportunity to change the trajectory of our kids' lives if we're willing to speak gospel truth into their life. And the next one, he says, be patient in rejection. He said, patiently enduring evil. Know that everyone won't recognize your heart, Timothy, when you come to them and confront them. Some people just aren't going to respond very well. Even if you're doing it all right, you're kind, you're being instructive. Some people just don't want to hear it. I like my appetites. I like my passions. I like the way my life's going at this moment. I like my functional saviors. But he says, you're going to ha- that's going to happen sometimes. It brings me to Proverbs 9, 8, which says, do not reprove the scoffer or the mocker, because he's going to hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. All right? So sometimes you're just dealing with a mocker. Somebody who doesn't really care. And so you try to speak into their life, and it turns out bad, and you're like, what did I do wrong here? But maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just the fact that they're just a mocker, a person who's a scoffer. But the wise person appreciates, and they love you more for it. And then finally, he says, be gentle, correcting his opponent with gentleness. This word is translated oftentimes 
Meekness. And I love that word meekness. Let me tell you a perfect example of instruction and correction that was done godly and wisely. And here I am 32 years later and still remember this crystal clear. My high school basketball team at our Christian school, we were having major attitude problems. I mean, we were like the jerks. I mean, honestly, like if you could mock and make fun and belittle other people, we would do it. We found sport in belittling the opponents or the people from a school that we go to. And to the point where some of the guys on our team would literally like destroy the locker room of the other team and just, you know, just do things that were horrible, awful. And one day our coach calls us into this room together, you know, 12 of us or so, and, and he says, guys, you're not being Christ-like. And he goes, let me tell you about meekness. God wants men to be meek. And he says, meekness means controlled strength. He says, picture a horse. It's so strong. It could easily just throw off the rider, trample the rider, but it can be controlled. You can harness its strength. And it's gentle. And it's meek. He says, that's what God has called you men to be. He said, men, you have a lot of passion and energy, and you have a, a lot of testosterone, and you have some of you even anger. But God wants to come alongside of you and make you men who are meek, controlled strength. You're strong, but it's under control. And how different, parents, if we would talk to our boys about that. Our society says, what? Boys, be weak. All right? Be weak. No, be meek, not weak. Control your strength. Be Christ-like in your strength. And what a good word of how to instruct from a coach many, many years ago that sticks with me today. And so as believers, we need to be speaking into each other's lives because we have blind spots and we have areas where we're living this way. And sometimes it can be things that aren't that obvious. And we need those who we trust to come alongside and to, to, to talk to us and help us and point us towards sanctification. And look what 25, the second part of 25 and 26 says. When we live the way that God's called us to live, it gets Satan's attention. These are the verses I, I mentioned last week as well. Look what he says. God may perhaps grant them, that's them, these guys, them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captive, held captive by him to do his will. Get that. He says what's going on in the church, the great house, the illustration, good vessels, honorable vessels, dishonorable vessels. He said Satan's literally, really causing people to think that these appetites they have are more fulfilling than what God offers us, that we think that we can play around and mess around with things, but yet we can still keep one foot over here in living an honorable life, and we think we can just embrace this kind of lifestyle. And he says, look, Satan will trap you. He'll get you in a snare, and he'll hold you captive. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning about addictions and what Paul Tripp said. These things that we think are going to be our saviors, they become our master. They become our master. 
And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you, that's your zip code where you live. That's your address. That you are being mastered by things other than God. And you need help. And when Timothy was instructed to be able to confront those in the church, there's some of these people who just weren't believers. They wouldn't hear it. They're false teachers. They're gangrene. They're cancer. But some people who were trapped in the snare, redemption was still possible. He says, God may grant them repentance. I recognize my ways. I'm not just sad that I got called or temporarily I'm a little bit down because of what I've been doing. But repentance, biblical repentance, is real sorrow over our sins. And willing to do anything that we need to do about that sin. We confess it. We talk to others about it if necessary. And a lot of times that's really, really helpful. Bring that out into the light. Expose the lies of Satan and allow God's redemption and his grace to overflow. So, where are you at in this spiritual warfare that's going on? Where are you at? Are you captured by Satan? Are you dabbling in sin? A quote that I heard many, many years ago says, it's much easier to get out of sin, or I'm sorry, to stay out of sin than to get out of sin. It's much easier to stay out of sin than get out of sin. Because you know, once you're trapped in those things and they become part of who you are and they're your appetites, it's so, so difficult. And Satan wants to use you as a tool in order to cause division and strife and disharmony within the church body. That's what Satan is after. He wants not only to destroy you, he wants to destroy any influence that Grace Church or any church that's living by biblical principles has for his kingdom and his glory. And so it matters. It matters to the church as a whole how you live your life because you think, well, it doesn't affect anybody else. It does. It affects others. It's a gangrene. It's a cancer. And it can cause our church not to be what God has called it to be. So there's a house, a great house, a big house. It's full of both. Which one are you? This is where Grace Church needs to be full of these. And so our head, our heart, and our hands. God desires his great house to be full of honorable vessels. Full of honorable vessels. And then your heart. We know that change in our actions starts when we start to change in our hearts. What is God doing? Ask yourself, what am I preoccupied with? What am I preoccupied with? Because it'd be easy for you to walk out of here and say, I don't struggle with sexual immorality or lust or these things, but yet money or greed is your God. And those are your appetites that are out of control. Only the Holy Spirit can bring that to your attention. Talk to God about changing these desires to be more in line with his. And then just practically, your hands. Ask someone you trust, where specifically do I need to grow spiritually? Ask somebody. I dare you to ask somebody in your K-group tonight or Wednesday night. Pull them aside and say, you know, I trust you, Justin. Where, where, should I, where do you need to see me grow? Where, where should I be growing spiritually? That's a big step. It takes a lot of Holy Spirit courage, but it's something that will reveal to you possibly your blind spots and those areas where God wants to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ.
Flee youthful passions. Pursue holiness, love. Be the kind of vessel God can use. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those in here who may right now just be struggling with overwhelming guilt. And God, I pray that you will allow them to see that just allowing guilt to go unchecked and not do anything about it is, is not the response that you want. But God, you want them to repent, to go to a brother or sister in Christ, and to get godly counsel, prayer, encouragement, to help them in this area where they've run to functional saviors that ultimately, maybe right now it hasn't failed them, but ultimately it will fail them. And they'll come out the other side worse off than they were at the beginning because they're not living their lives the way the Holy Spirit is urging them and convicting them to live their lives. And God, I pray that that, that, con- that guilt will turn into godly conviction and godly sorrow and godly repentance. And God, I pray you'll help us to be, have the courage, all of us, to ask someone where the blind spots are, where we can grow spiritually, so our church can be a house full of vessels that are honorable and can be used, so we can be a light for the city, set on the hill, a city that cannot be hid. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.